Well, we all have uh, succumbed to the temptation. I'm sure we all have, living here in America, of eating fast food. And whenever we do that, and whenever you do that, there's always the justification for many reasons of the compromise of our cholesterol and bowels for good reasons, we think. That is, uh, we're in a rush, or we don't want to fool with it, and so we are willing to punt the old adage that says uh, that good things come to those who are willing to wait, and we don't wait. And we'll drive through, or we'll walk through, and order something that's fast, but that's something that costs you much, and that's terrible for you. We're willing to trade uh, convenience, or I should say we're willing to trade quality for the sake of convenience. And a lot of times, you know, as long as it's not terribly frequent, uh, that's okay. It really is. But when we transfer that kind of a fast food mindset to the decisions that we make in our lives, and our culture does encourage us to do this, to take the same kind of grid through which we filter decisions, and we make a decision based on its convenience as opposed to the quality of the decision. I'd like for us to look together at John chapter 7. If you brought a Bible, John chapter 7. We're continuing in our series, as David mentioned, on Jesus and people, various encounters people had with the Son of God. And we've looked at Jesus talking to the woman at the well about the issue of looking for significance in every place but the place that you find significance, that is the Lord. We've looked at Jesus and his disciples about how they felt so inadequate to do what he had commanded and how we can learn from that experience as well of feeling inadequate. We looked last week at John the Baptist, the idea there of struggling with doubt about something that you believe. Well, today we're going to look at an incident that really and literally strikes close to home for Jesus because it was his home, it was his brothers, that, who are the encounter that Jesus has this week. John chapter 7, let's start in verse 2 and pick up the story. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may behold your works which you were doing. Now the disciples speak, that are spoken of here are not the twelve disciples. His brothers are speaking of the great crowds that followed Jesus and who would all be going down to Judea now for this great feast of booths. There were three feasts a year that the Jews were required to go down to and so everybody would be going to Jerusalem which was in Judea for this feast. And his brothers say, uh, you ought to go there so that everybody can behold the works that you're doing. And now look at the reason that they give him this advice in verse 4. They say, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now the brothers of Jesus here figured that Jesus had the talent, Jesus had the skill, 
but Jesus lacked public relations abilities. They figure he didn't really know the way to, if he wanted to be the Messiah, if that's who he was aspiring to be in their mind, then the place to do it was not their hometown up in Galilee. The place and the perfect time to do it would be to go down while everybody is at this feast and to, to do the same miracles that he did up in Galilee down in Judea. It's kind of like if, uh, if we were to say Jesus was aspiring to be a country and western star, all right, but he only played gigs in Crum, Texas. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Crum, but uh, if you're wanting to be a country and western star, that's probably not the best place to go for your gigs. You probably want to move up to some place like Nashville or something where the people who can recognize you as a country and western star are. They're not in Crum. And so his brothers are basically saying, Jesus, if you're wanting to be the Messiah, you need to quit these Galilee gigs and go and do your works down here in Judea, in Jerusalem. And what more perfect time to do it than at the Feast of Booths where the whole nation is going to be down there. And then we have this interesting verse in verse 5 that is pretty shocking compared to the verses just prior to it. We're told, for not even his brothers were believing in him. They said this, and his brothers were not even believing in him. Now, it's not that they didn't believe he could do miracles. Certainly they'd seen them. What they didn't believe was that Jesus was the Messiah that he claimed that he was. They didn't believe it, at least at this point. You know, and I've thought about that, how unusual it would be to grow up with Jesus Christ, to look at this little perfect boy that always did everything right, that never got the spankings unless mommy and daddy were in sin. It's never that he did anything wrong. He was always the perfect child. And you know that there was some kind of a resentment there as they grew up. There had to have been. You can't be around anybody that's perfect and not feel a little irritated that they never goof up. And so these brothers didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, even though he did these incredible miracles, the likes of which certainly they'd never seen before in their lives. There's another passage that uh, I don't want you to turn to. You can just look at the screen. But let me read to you from Matthew 13 as to perhaps why it was his brothers didn't believe, his very own brothers. Matthew 13, verse 54, starting, says, And coming to his hometown, he began teaching them in their synagogue, so that they became astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. Jesus comes to his hometown here, and instead of feeling honored, Instead of, being, uh, of praising God and being thankful and being proud of this man, Jesus, who grew up among them and who was the Messiah, instead they took offense at him. And why? Because they knew him. Because he grew up there. Because they, see, they saw him with a wet nose. Because they, his family, in fact, 
uh, saw him in diapers. And I don't know if you have ever tried <clears throat> to share Christ with your family or if you've ever said something that's true to your family. It doesn't necessarily have to be sharing Christ, but you say something that's true to your family. Something that you've learned perhaps in your life that God has taught you. Uh, and what do they do? Your own family slams the door in your face emotionally. Have you ever wondered why it is when you try to talk to your family about God or about truth, they don't want to hear it? They are more comfortable of listening to an absolute stranger than they are their very own family about God. You know why that is? The same reason it was for Jesus. Is this not the carpenter's kid? We know him. And there's something about familiarity that really does breed contempt. Because when you mix familiarity, you know somebody well, and you mix the sinful element of human pride together, the result is that for some reason you can't listen to them preach to you. You can listen to an absolute stranger, but not to somebody familiar. There's something about it. It was true of Jesus, and it's true of you and me. That's just the way it is. His brothers did not believe in him. And it's interesting, if you were to read through the Gospel of Mark, you'd see a point where Mark says that his family came to take possession of him because they thought he had lost his senses. His family came to take possession of him. In fact, it's just before the time, that famous statement, that uh, uh, they came and said, Jesus, your mother and your brother are outside. Your mother and your brothers. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? But those who obey the word of God. You know why they were standing outside? It's just a few verses before that, Mark had told us they'd come to, they wanted to come take possession of him because they thought he was nuts. His own family didn't believe. Not so sure about Mary, I, I believe she did. But the brothers, they didn't at this point. John 7 tells us, for even his brothers, for not even his brothers, were believing in him. It happens to us, and it happens to Jesus. So look what Jesus answers and tells his brothers. What they say, hey, you ought to go, you ought to go down to uh, Judea if you're trying to make a name for yourself. And he says in verse 6, Jesus therefore said to them, My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. Our first point today is really a paraphrase of that statement that Jesus makes. And that is that we want the benefit immediately. God wants it, though, appropriately. We want it right now. God wants it when it's best for us to have it. I always try when I go to the doctor's office to, uh, when I make an appointment, to make the earliest one. That way, uh, I don't have to sit there and wait while all the backlog of patients that's been log jammed throughout the whole day is waiting as well. Sitting there in the waiting room reading Better Homes and Gardens and counting the fish in the aquarium for 30 minutes to an hour waiting for an appointment. You know, and I thought about that this week. The waiting room in a doctor's office is very well named, isn't it? Because that's what you do. You wait. And you wait, and you wait, unless you get the first appointment. And then you only have to wait 
15 minutes. But I began to think that the doctor's office is really not the only waiting room that we have in our lives. Our automobiles are waiting rooms, aren't they? When you're stuck at a railroad crossing and you're late, or when you're behind an old jalopy going out on 380, that all he's got to do is get home and feed the chickens, and he's going 30 miles an hour, and you can't pass. Your car is a waiting room. Sitting at a red light, your car is a waiting room. Or what about at the office, waiting on 5 o'clock? That's the waiting room. What about at the grocery store, where you get in a line, there's only two people. Oh, great, there's only two people, but the cash, the teller is her first day, and she ran out of receipt tape, and she can't figure out how to get the machine open. Supermarket is a waiting room. What about when you go to the movies, ladies, and there's a, a line outside the ladies' bathroom a mile long? It's a waiting room to get in the restroom, nonetheless. And at home, even our homes are waiting rooms. Two hours to supper. I'll tell you what, my daughters want to eat. They want to eat now. And that waiting room gets smaller and smaller and smaller until the time comes to eat. The point is that the waiting room is really the room of life. God has designed certain circumstances, and certain circumstances turn out to, maybe I should say, ordinary experiences turn into experiences of sitting in the waiting room. But no amount of magazines and aquariums can take away our desire that we hate to wait. We absolutely hate it. My girls are a great example. They're four and six years old. And as I told you, when they want to eat, they want to eat now. When they want to drink, they want to drink now. They don't want it in ten minutes. When they want to play with me, and I say, well, all right, give me a few minutes to either you know, just get home or cool down or finish whatever I'm doing. No, I want you to play with me now. And if they don't get it, they start crying. But you know what I love about children? Is they are so honest. They haven't learned to hide the honesty that we feel, or the feelings that we feel, but we won't express. You know, once we become mature, we learn how to handle our emotions. All we do is really hiding how we truly feel. Don't you wish sometimes at the mall that you could just fall down on the floor and cry? I want that blouse! And just beat on the ground. In all honesty, sometimes that's what you want to do. And a child is like that. Honest. But sometimes it is better to wait because God wants it, whatever it is, when it's appropriate to give us, give it to us. Uh, David mentioned about the renovation two doors down with Vision Ministries having moved out. I don't know if you know, but we prayed that Vision would find a place for about no, two or three years, at least two, certainly. And uh, we prayed and prayed and prayed for them to find a place. And all of a sudden, the place opened up, it looked like, back over here, and they even got as far as talking about the lease, maybe even signed the lease, I don't remember. But then it didn't work, and so they backed out. And well, Lord, it looks like you gave and then you took away. And then again, there was a place over here on the north side of the square, we thought, oh, great, what a perfect spot, they're still close to us. But that fell through as well. And over and over and over, it looked like, yes, thank you, Lord, Lord, what are you doing? Don't you realize that they need space? They needed the space, and we needed their space for the kids' connection to, to grow and to have more classrooms. And it was last fall, I believe, that uh, Al and Brian and I were sitting around, 
and we asked him how much square footage he needed, and he said, he, he said well, 6,000 would be great. And Brian says, well, we'll pray for 8,000 for the same price. And you know what happened just a couple months after that? Just two, three blocks down here, 8,000 square feet opened up for the same price. And that place is wonderful, and it is so perfect for vision ministry. And when you compare what they have now with the two places that we were excited about initially, you see that God knew exactly what he was doing when he said no, and we were going yes, when he said no, and we were going yes, and then finally he says yes, and we go, oh, now I understand. We want it immediately, even if we're willing to compromise. It's the whole fast food mentality. Yeah, Lord, it may be a little smaller. Or yeah, Lord, it may not be good for me, but at least I get it now. We want it immediately. But God wants it appropriately. It didn't seem rational for Jesus' brothers that Jesus did not make himself known. But Jesus said that his time... Uh, was not yet at hand. But your time is always opportune. That's the way it is with us. And you know, this isn't the first time that Jesus had to pull back, you might say, the messianic reins from his family. It was, it's in the same book, in the book of John earlier, that his mother, Mary, at the wedding in Cana, they ran out of wine, and she says, they've all run out of wine. The implication is, Jesus, here's a great opportunity for you to show yourself to be the Messiah. And he answered to his mom the same thing he answered to his brothers and said, my time is not yet come. And it's interesting to me that the, the times that Jesus has said that, my time has not yet come, both times it was to his family that was pressuring him to push ahead the schedule a little bit and to, to jump ahead of the timing that God had. In fact, if you were to keep reading in John, you'd see in the same chapter, John 7 and in John 8, they tried to lay their hands on him to arrest him. And John says, but his time had not yet come. Even the devil tempted Jesus not to wait for what Christ knew would be his. You remember when he took him up to this high this place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world? And he pointed to him and says, all this can be yours now? The implication being you don't have to go to the cross to reign in the world. All you've got to do is bow down and worship me. See, there's always some little compromise with the fast food mentality. For Jesus, it would have been worshiping an angel he created and then rebelled against him. Well, of course, Christ didn't do that. Jesus was willing to follow the Father's timing instead of others' opinions about what Jesus ought to do. And you see... Uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, finally the night before Jesus was crucified. He bowed his head and he said to the Father, Father, the hour has come. All the time so far he's been saying, my time has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, and then finally, when he knew it was time, he said, the hour has come. And he was ready. We want it immediately, but God wants it appropriately. Look what else Jesus told his brothers in verse 7. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast, because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. And if you were to read on, you would see that his brothers went down, but Jesus also went down in secret. 
So why did he tell his brothers, well, I, I won't go up to this feast? What he meant was, I won't go up to this feast like you want me to, to proclaim myself as a Messiah. It wouldn't be, six it wouldn't be but six months later, after this feast, at, the, at another feast, Passover, that he would uh, declare himself to be the Messiah. It wasn't time yet. Jesus waited, and his brothers couldn't understand that. Here's a good biblical fact that we would do well to think long on and to accept. And that is this, that the ultimate plan of God for us includes preparation and waiting. And that's tough. The waiting is tough. We know that. The preparation also. Like, uh, that was a great film clip. We couldn't understand why he had to paint the fence, wax the floors, uh, wax the cars and sand the floors. Didn't make sense. Feel like this guy didn't know what he was doing, a half crazy uh, master of karate. Well, he knew exactly what he was doing. And so does the Lord, incidentally, when he has you in some job, you feel like you're spinning your wheels. He knows exactly what he's doing in preparation. Think about the life of Jesus for a minute. From the time he was little and could hold a hammer, to the time Luke tells us he was about the age of 30. He was a carpenter. You want to think, why would God, the Father, have his son waste all that time as a carpenter when he could have been doing what he did the last three and a half years of his life? Why would he do that? It's a time of preparation for the Lord Jesus. Think about the life of Moses. It's a great example. He thought he was ready to lead the exodus at the age of 40. But he blew it. Went out, was presumptuous, started to try to do it his own way, and as a result, he fled to a foreign country for 40 years. You know what he did in that foreign country? Had nothing to do with uh, what he thought he would be doing, at least initially. He was a shepherd. 40 years, Moses was a shepherd. Figured he had been a failure until God called him at the burning bush and said, now you're ready. For 40 years as a shepherd, God was preparing him for his ultimate purpose. He thought he was ready at 40. Nope, he was only halfway there. At 80, he came back and led the exodus. The ultimate plan of God includes preparation and waiting. You know, I tried to think about, through the scripture, of an example of somebody that God basically put them where he wanted them and they began doing immediately their ultimate purpose. Uh, Samuel is probably about the only example I could think of. It's very rare uh, in the scripture and so we can take it in our lives as well. That the purpose, the ultimate purpose that God has for you, uh, he rarely just plops you down in it initially. But there is a period of preparation and waiting. But you know, in our impatience to want to succeed, we will overlook the qualifications of success. We want it immediately. We may think we're ready. We may think, Lord, what are you waiting on? I'm spinning my wheels in this job, in this town, in this etc., etc., not understanding how you could possibly be prepared, being prepared. I remember when I was in college over at the university, majored in music, and I could not figure out why in the world I had to take a music 
uh, well, music history was one. I still haven't figured that one out. But uh, uh, what was it? Ear training. Basically, the, the guy would play something on the piano, and I'd have to write it down on a piece of uh, staff paper. And I remember thinking, what a complete waste of time to do this. Then when I got into seminary, one of the classes I was in, the prof had us all go up on the chalkboard and write out our life. And I remember thinking, what time is this over? This is silly. And so we went up to, I went up on the chalkboard and I said, well, I was born. And I was very young at the time. <laughs> and God took me through it, you know, went through this and that. And I talked about various things. And then I talked about the fact that, he says, well, what did you enjoy doing? And I said, well, you know, a buddy of mine and I made movies. We did that for several years and I got a real kick out of that. And then I got kind of developed an interest in music. And so I went to college and majored in music. And then after I finished, sat down, he said, all right, Wayne, what do you feel like the Lord's going to have you do after you get out of seminary? And I thought, well, you know, um, maybe counseling. And he said, you know what? I bet, or I wonder if God doesn't have something for you in the area of creative visuals, in the area of music and being up in front of people. And I remember thinking, well, yeah, maybe in heaven. You know, that ain't ever going to happen here. That'd be too good to be true. And yet, it wasn't two years after he made that statement that we started this church in 1990, and my job was to do the audiovisuals and to lead the band. And you know what I did? Every single week, I would listen to three songs off a tape and make a chart for the band to, uh, to, to play. And you know where I learned how to do that? In that dumb class where he played on the piano and I listened and wrote it down. God was preparing me and I had no idea. I thought I was completely wasting my time. God prepares us for what he wants and then we wait. But you know what can be really frustrating is knowing that God has created you for something. And he has. Because the scripture tells us for every person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. God has a purpose for your life. You may not feel like it. You may not see it. But God has prepared beforehand good works for you to walk in. And what can be so frustrating is you may even know, Lord, I know this is what you want me to do. But yet, you're in the desert watching sheep. Going, what's going on? Not understanding that your character is being prepared. Remember King David. Before he was King David, he was a little boy, got anointed as king, and then ran for years as a fugitive not as king. What was he doing during all that time? Being prepared. His character was being prepared for the time that he would be king. David had many opportunities to kill the king and to take his place, but he didn't. Instead, he said, when the Lord wants me to be king, I'll be king, and not until then. He waited on God. But you know what? If we don't wait, if we don't do what David did, 
and we decide that we want what we want and we want it now, and we go ahead and we justify our presumption, really, by saying that we're stepping out in faith, when instead we're not waiting on God. Now, granted, there, is, there can be a fine line between presumption and faith. Obviously, faith is something that you don't see, something that you believe in and you don't see. So there's a fine line, but I think that if you wait on the Lord, He will make it clear to you what is faith and what is presumption. You know, if God were to let us know all that we had to go through, as you're there sitting in the desert, or as you're there in that job, or you're there in whatever it is, that music class, that you feel like you're getting nothing out of it and it's going to serve no purpose in my life. If God were to tell you where this is leading, how long it's going to be, how long you're going to have to endure, if he were going to tell you the game plan, or you might say the curriculum in your preparation for your ultimate purpose, you would never follow God. Because it's going to include some things <laughs> that you would never want to go through. And if you look back in your life and you look at some of the stuff that you've had to go through to get to where you are now, better for it. If you had known that, you never would have willingly followed. So God doesn't tell us. He just lets us trust him. Noah waited 100 years for the flood, built the ark 100 years. Abraham waited 25 years for his promised son to come. Joseph waited 22 years, almost half of that in a prison, waiting for his dreams to come true. The ultimate plan of God includes preparation and waiting. You know what we're ultimately, though, being prepared for? Ultimately, we're being prepared for heaven, to be like the Lord Jesus. Look at the screen at a paraphrase Eugene Peterson wrote of a text in Romans 8. He said, God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. We see the original and intended uh, shape of our lives there in him. After God made that decision of what his children should be like, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. I've got a dog named Sam that does a little trick. Uh, I'll say, Sam, get your ball. And she goes and she gets her ball and she comes and she brings it. And I say, drop, and she drops it. And I say, sit, and she sits. Can you follow the pattern so far? I pick up the ball and I say, stay, and I throw it, and she stays. But she turns and she watches the ball and she sees where it lands. And she immediately, looking at the ball, and then she's just kind of looking back at me, just waiting for me to give the command to say, get it. And I can stand there for five minutes, or I can stand there for five seconds, and she's not going to go. Well, she's gotten pretty lazy in her old age lately, but normally, she will not go after that ball until I tell her, go get it. And it's so funny to watch her, <laughs> because I'll make sounds. I won't give her the command. I won't say, get it. But I'll go... <laughs> It's cruel, but it's funny. I'll say stuff like, uh, she'll be waiting, and you can see her ears going back and forth just listening, and the muscles just twitching, waiting for me to say, go. And instead of saying, get it, I'll do stuff like, I'll go. <clears throat> and she'll <laughs> she's kind of jerk. But she knows not to go. She's just, she's just like Carl Lewis in the starting blocks, waiting, 
eagerly waiting for the command of her master to go and get that ball. And finally I'll say, get it, and she'll run and she'll go get it. But I share that to say that is a very biblical way to wait. Biblical way to wait. In fact, one of uh, the Hebrew words in the Old Testament for wait is to longingly look for, to anxiously look for, to wait. And most often in the New Testament, the word wait is used in the context of waiting for the Lord Jesus to return. Waiting like my dog waits for the command of her master. With every muscle twitched and one eye on that ball and one eye on the master. To wait. And the moment she hears it, boom, she's gone. What are we waiting for? Well, while we're being prepared for heaven, you know, heaven is also being prepared for us. There is a, a purpose in our waiting, and that is preparation. Both our preparation for it and its preparation for us. Remember what the Lord Jesus told his disciples? He said, in my Father's house are many, many dwelling places. Literally, the word there is apartment. Isn't that great? You die and go to heaven, you live forever in an apartment. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And so we wait because there is a time of preparation. Not only for our purpose here on earth, but also for our purpose in eternity. There is preparation that is required. The text we read today talked about Jesus' brothers being unbelievers. And yet after his resurrection, his brothers became believers. And so much so that James, one of his brothers, became the leader of the church in Jerusalem and wrote a book, in fact, in the Bible. The very, in fact, the very first book written in the New Testament was the book of James, the brother of Jesus. One of the same ones who had... Uh, not believed in him earlier. Another brother, Jude, was one of the last books written in the New Testament. And it's interesting what Jude writes in his epistle about waiting. This is the one that was so anxious not for, Je for Jesus to do what he wanted, for what Jude wanted. He said this, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. He doesn't say waiting for my brother Jesus, but our Lord. He calls this guy he grew up with his Lord because he believed. And I don't know where you are today. If you were to die, where the place prepared for you would be. There is a place in heaven prepared for those who love the Lord Jesus and who believe that he has died for their sins and been resurrected. And there is also a place the Bible tells us in Revelation, prepared for the devil and his angels. And depending on your faith or lack of faith in Jesus Christ is going to determine the destination prepared for you. If you were to die today and stand in front of God and he were to say to you, why should I let you in heaven? What would you tell him? 
Could you go down the long list of all the great things you've done? How many <coughs> Easter's and Christmases and stuff you went to church? How many good deeds you did? Or, instead of having boasting in the good works that you've done, and also their standing with you is the sin that you've done, would you instead say, Lord, there is no reason in and of myself that you should let me in, but I know that Jesus died to pay for my sins, and I believe that. That is the right answer. And I want to encourage you, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, to do that and to know that the place prepared for you and the place for which you are being prepared is the house of God the Father. And Jesus will one day come, as he promised, and take you to be with him, that where he is, you may be also, forever and forever. I'd like for us to pray together. And as we do that, I want to read to you the last two verses of the book of Jude. This is, again, the brother of the Lord Jesus. So bow your head and I'll read and then we'll pray. Jude says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God and Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Father, we bow before you today and we claim with Jude how eagerly we look forward to the day when Jesus Christ will return again at the rapture and to take everyone who has placed their faith in him immediately into his presence. Until that time, Lord, we wait, knowing we are being prepared for it, and it is being prepared for us. And as we go through this life, and as we wonder how we are being prepared, be it a music class, be it a job, be it whatever, we feel that we're wasting our time. We know, Lord, that you are developing our character through the mundane so that the skills that you've given us for our ultimate purpose will also have the character to go with it that we might be able to fulfill that purpose to your glory. To that end, we pray and praise you. in Jesus' name. Hi, this is Wayne Stiles. You can receive a weekly devotional by email by subscribing to my blog at waynestyles.com. There you'll also find resources for devotional and Bible land study, as well as a way for us to connect via Facebook and Twitter. There's even an opportunity to support this weekly podcast with a donation. That's waynestyles.com. Thanks for listening.